Hey, Whitney. Yes. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Um, hot and sweaty, so sure. Luca, come on, man. Greetings, friends. Welcome back to the Two Shot. Ow, my face! That's the punch sound effect film review podcast. <laughs> Repair bad films with good films. Uh, my my name, my face. My face is Whitney Seibel. <laughs> I'm the face of the operation. And what a face it is. It's and, uh, handsome and furry. And, uh, and I'm the most hated man on Twitter right now. <laughs> Some days it feels that way. Uh, that's what you get for not liking a Rambo sequel. Yeah, sorry I didn't like Rambo 5. Oh, God. We're going to have to have a long, long, long talk about the latest <laughs> Rambo movie, but that's for the critically acclaimed podcast. Yeah. You're listening to The Two Shot. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting. Everybody calls me Bibbs. And on this program, we review uh, one of the most notorious movies ever made, as selected by you, our listeners. And we pair it up with a classic film of our choosing. Yes. This week, we decided to make all of your options the notoriously bad films of an otherwise great actor, mm. Jeremy Irons. Because Jer- it's his birthday. Jeremy Irons is wonderful. He's so good. I mean, uh, Dead he- Ringers and Reversal of Fortune alone uh-huh. make him an all-time acting icon. Those yeah. are two of the great performances of the latter part of the 20th century. And even when you look at some of like his, I guess, his less celebrated films, he still turns in wonderful performances. Have mm-hmm. you seen M. Butterfly? I've actually he's, never seen M. Butterfly. He's really great in M. Butterfly. He's great in Lolita. He's yeah. like just... I'm not, I'm not sure if you've ever read Lolita, but he is the perfect Humber. Okay, yeah. good to know. Um, so he's, but he's one of those actors who will be in anything. Like he'll hmm. be in good movies and he'll be in bad movies, and he never phones in a bad movie performance. Like he's always giving it his all, but sometimes the movie is bad around him. And he's such a prolific actor that he's been in a lot of crap. <laughs> uh, one of the films that people said, "Hey, why didn't you put this on your poll?" was Aragon. Why didn't we do Aragon? Because we already did Aragon. <laughs> we did. We uh, we I was on a previous poll. We could dedicate at least a whole forgot, month nothing but Jeremy Irons movies if we wanted to. I forgot what the theme of that that poll was. I think it was uh, fantasy. Yeah, just bad fantasy maybe, films. Maybe YA fantasy, like failed YA fantasy. Oh, that might have been it. We ended up pairing it with Conan the Barbarian, the mm-hmm. original uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger version, as sort of the... Like a better version of high fantasy. Yeah, here's what high fantasy can feel like and mm. how natural it can feel and how dramatic it can feel as opposed to how fake and chintzy and, uh, mm. you know, stereotypical and, Aragon came across. And speaking of fake and chintzy and stereotypical. <laughs> yeah, of all the of all the films you could have chosen and your options included, uh, what was on there? Beautiful Creatures was mm. on there. Uh, spoil, spoiler alert, I love that movie. I was looking forward to that, and I did not win. <laughs> uh, I don't love that movie, but I love it more than the other ones on that list. Um, what else was on there? The Time Machine, oh, that where, he movie plays, sucks. where he plays the King of the Morlocks. Oh, it's such a weird performance. And, and he looks like well, a Cenobite from Hellraiser. Yeah, basically. He looks yeah. like a Gene Stealer from Warhammer 40K. Yeah, he's, but... yeah, he's got like white skin, this long fright wig, and like this weird fetishy leather outfit. Terrible. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what the other one was, but what you chose was the 2000 film Dungeons and Dragons based off of the popular, long-lasting, iconic role-playing game. Mm-hmm. Uh, Founded by Gary Gygax, a d- friend of my uncle, it turns out. No kidding, that's yeah, they, cool. They, they tooled around together, my uncle and Gary Gygax. That's amazing. So Dungeons and Dragons is... I, I wonder how many people need 
an intro to Dungeons and Dragons, but let's be thorough. Well, okay. Uh, you've heard of role playing games, perhaps. Uh, a role playing game is you invent an imaginary character with stats and items they hold and a personality, mm-hmm. the past, skills, if you like, yeah, skills, skills, abilities, yeah, charisma, sense of humor. Yeah, you, you can you can create yeah. all of this on a page. You can create you know reduce a character down to like numbers, and then. In an imaginary sense, in a storytelling sort of way, you interact with a game master, and that character goes on these imaginary adventures that the game master controls. And you roll dice to make sure your character survives and achieves certain goals throughout this game. Yeah, the dice are basically probabilities. So, Mm -hmm. for example, the dice basically turn every decision you could make into a mathematical game of probability. So, Mm -hmm. for example... I have never seriously wielded a sword in my entire life. So if I were fighting a ninja... <laughs> like somebody who has. And I, I, me, my character, had only a sword, and I took a swing, the odds of me actually landing that blow mm. are, at like, at best 1 in 50. So you'd roll a 50-sided die, more or less. <laughs> yeah, or whatever yeah. whatever the... the Whatever it would be, mm. and if I got a if I got a one, <laughs> then you win. Yeah, yeah. We're good. <laughs> otherwise I get killed by that ninja mm. because I did not level up my sword fighting when I should have. I leveled up podcasting for the last ten years. <laughs> Hopefully, the ninja is interested and has an iPod. <laughs> Maybe you can just invite the ninja on your podcast. <laughs> so send him a Facebook direct message I, or something. I'd say roll for charisma, but we've all heard our podcasts. I have none. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're, we're oozing charisma. It's, um, it's like. Europe. But yeah, Dungeons and Dragons was that set in a very classical um, J.R.R. Tolkien style fantasy world of dragons and wizards and what have you. Yeah. And um, uh, a, was- a lot of fantasy imagery and iconography is familiar to us because of Dungeons and Dragons. A lot of Dungeons and Dragons invented a lot of it. A lot of it was just sort of compiled and pushed through this game. Mm-hmm. So a lot of fantasy words like yeah, and creatures you know, drag wyvern, for instance, is a word wyvern. I wouldn't wyvern. I don't think I've heard it spoken aloud before. I, I have. All I right. have admit, I've watched a lot of fantasy shows. L i c h. How do you pronounce it? Lich. Not leek. No. I've heard it both ways. I've not. All right. <laughs> but a lot of these, a lot of these creatures, I I only know because of Dungeons and Dragons. In fact, one of my favorite books when I was like maybe nine years old was the Dungeons and Dragons Monster Manual. Oh, I just loved monster guides in general. Yeah, you got to learn about all these cool monsters. Now I knew nothing. I didn't even know Dungeons and Dragons was really a game. I didn't know how you played it. I didn't really care. I just liked looking through the book and like comparing stats of monsters and learning about these creatures and seeing the little illustrations. Yeah, I love that part too. My older brother, I have a mm. brother who's nine years older than me. So by the time I was like mm. coming into my own and finding my personality, he was out the door. But I remember when I was very, very little, he was into Dungeons and Dragons mm. and I wanted to hang out with my brother. But I was very young and not good at it. And the like I'm sure two he was times really frustrated. Yeah, like the two times he tried, mm. I'm sure he hated every second of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not unsympathetic. At least he was game. That was a, a good good of your brother twice. To do. But yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, so I I never really played a lot of it, but I was surrounded by it. And mm. when he left uh, to go into the Marine Corps, uh, he left all the books behind. And but so I just sort of thumbing, started thumbing through his yeah, books. I've still never really seriously played role playing games, but I have a lot of respect for it. I got nothing oh, against yeah. it as a as uh, a genre, and, and I'm and I'm passionately familiar with a lot of it. I went to a friend's fifteenth birthday party, and it was the first time I heard Bon Jovi. It was the. <laughs> 
I, I was, well, like I'd heard. What bunch, year was this? It was just like it was the nineties. But uh, like, wow, I, how did I, you get that far? I had heard Bon Jovi like on the radio, but it was just sort of music on the radio. I didn't really acknowledge that's Bon Jovi. I wasn't okay. paying attention. So somebody said, "You got to sit down. You got to listen to some Bon Jovi." It's like, oh, this is, this is good hair metal. Uh, I saw Hellraiser 2 for the first time, Ooh, which is a great movie. That's a hell of a sleepover. And I, and I played my very first game of Dungeons and Dragons, which wow. was like, it was like a, a, like a one and a half hour campaign. It was like nothing. And I got crushed yeah. by a giant. So I didn't do very well. It's a fun night. That's a very formative night. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's like if I had lost my virginity, it would have been great. <laughs> well, yeah. Was, yeah. <laughs> Granted. But yeah, the, there, there were no girls there. All the boys were straight. No luck. So... <laughs> Uh, uh, sorry, buddy. Uh, yeah. Well, what can you do? Anyway. Uh, but uh, yeah, a, a couple of years later, some friends of mine and I got together in high school and we actually did play like an extended D&D campaign when I was like 15 or so. Okay. So I'm passingly familiar with Dungeons and Dragons as a phenomenon. Yeah. Um, Dungeons and Dragons was a very popular game, particularly uh, in the 80s. Uh, it started to pick up in popularity, and it started to pick up in notoriety uh, on the part of parents who thought that kids play-acting as wizards and monsters was mm. somehow satanic. And yeah. indeed, Dungeons and & Dragons, alongside in particular heavy metal and horror movies, mm. became this scapegoat for the religious right of things that are yeah. corrupting your children. And if your kids start playing Dungeons & Dragons, you need to get them to church real fast. Uh, you can go to church, yeah, and then go come home from church and play more Dungeons and Dragons. It's, <laughs> it's a, it's a very, that sounds like a great way to spend a Sunday. It's a very harmless game. Yeah, like, it's, it's absolutely absurd. Th- there's a really funny bit by a, a sketch comedy troupe called the Dead Ale Wives, and oh, I've uh, heard this one, yeah, yeah and, and it, it starts with one of those like scare film in- introductions. It's an audio piece. It's like Dungeons and Dragons is Satan's game, and your children are being drawn into the occult. And we snuck in a microphone to an actual D and D session, and it's just a bunch of kids saying, "Where are the cheetah?" I want to cast magic missile. You can't attack magic missile. There's nothing to attack here. I just want to attack the darkness. Hey, where am I? Oh, you're out by the tavern. Cool, I'm going to get drunk. Roll the dice to see if I'm getting drunk. Hey, can I have a Mountain Dew? You know, it's like... <laughs> it's just it's, a bunch of kids saying It's just a bunch of kids like, yeah, like all it is. nattering at each other and saying stupid crap. Anyway, that was a lot of the appeal. <laughs> Dungeon Dragons never went away. It was very popular. There was an animated series in the 80s that... Oh, God, I remember that series. It wasn't very good. It was about a bunch of game players who ended up in the actual Dungeons and Dragons world. Yeah, they, you want to see a good they, version of that, watch the movie Flight of Dragons. Otherwise, don't bother. Yeah, they, they went into a tunnel of love, were transported into the world of D&D as their characters. You know, like all tunnel of loves do. Mm. Uh, anyway, there had been talk for many, many years of doing a Dungeons & Dragons movie. It mm. never came together, it never came together. And then in the year 2000, just before Lord of the Rings came out, like a year before Lord of the Rings debuted... Mm. Uh, they squeaked one out. <laughs> they just, they just like pushed it through production like yeah. as quickly and as cheaply as they could. And um, boy, is it crappy. Uh, uh, well, okay. Dungeons and Dragons is the premise for of a film is fine. Oh, nothing and wrong in, with in it. In fact, I I imagine there are you know, thousands of Dungeons and Dragons players out there who have probably said to themselves, this campaign would make a great movie. Mm-hmm. We constructed a good story working with the Game Master, and you know, this, these are good characters we constructed. There are so many ways to construct a Dungeons & Dragons movie out of any random game, right? right? You just need clever enough characters and a fun enough story. The possibilities are limitless. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, that's what the filmmakers of Dungeons & Dragons, the film, did. 
they came up with characters for a campaign. They tried to come up with a story for a campaign and transpose that to cinema. This is not a bad idea. And in fact, the premise of the film, two thieves who end up having to steal a dragon rod uh, to control an army of dragons that will take down a kingdom. And there's an evil wizard who wants the dragon rod. And there's a a put upon queen who can't stop the evil wizard. Mm -hmm. These are all the... Perfectly decent elements for a fantasy yeah, film. Yeah, the structure of the narrative is basically fine. So mm-hmm. the plot of the the plot of the thing is this: uh, Justin Whalen, uh, who you do <laughs> not know, mistake number one. <laughs> yeah, you don't know who he is, but uh, if you oh, were, he, he was a big heartthrob, and he was he at some was point. He really? yeah. Was he? I think I saw him on at least one magazine cover. No. Okay, so Justin Whalen, who was um, Jimmy Olsen on Lois and Clark, The New Adventures mm. of Superman. He's also Andy in Child's Play 3. He's also Andy in Child's mm. Play 3. I forgot about that. Uh, yeah, he stars as Ridley. Ridley is a thief who, along with his fellow thief friend Snails, played by Marlon Wayans. This is right around the time he did Requiem for a Dream, so his path was... His career was just like, where do you want to go, Marlon Wayans? You want to do comedy sidekick or Oscar-nominated dramas? You chose the haunted... A haunted thing. Uh, it's called, uh, just called A Haunted House. I'm sorry, A Haunted yeah. House. God, those movies are bad. Yeah. <laughs> They're really... Uh, yeah, those are, there, but anyway. There's, there's one funny joke in A Haunted House. Yes. It's like, they see the ghost. Oh, no, there's a ghost. We know there's a ghost. And he tries to move out immediately. It's like 10 minutes into the movie. It's like, okay, and we see the moving van, and then he drives back in the moving van, comes out in tears, and just says, I can't afford another house! <laughs> there's actually and they one, have to move back in. There's yeah. actually one other good joke in it. It's where they're trying to just ignore the ghost, like it was a petulant child. Oh, yeah, yeah, Okay, there are two funny two jokes, funny jokes in, in, Haunted that, house, in that whole movie. Which makes up for the fact that there are, like, negative 50 funny jokes in a haunted house, too. But <laughs> I digress. Uh, so Marlon Wayans is his best friend, his fellow thief, Snails. He's the comic relief sidekick. Mm-hmm. Um, a thief, by the way, is, is a class of character you can choose in Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, there are whole guilds yeah. about thieves and, you know, skill sets and everything. And So at the start of the film, a wizard named Profion, played by the great Jeremy Irons, mm-hmm. uh, has... Just, played half by Jeremy Irons and half by whatever whiskey is in his system. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Irons has gone... Full Raul Julia and Street Fighter. <laughs> he, he, he is. It 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 feels like he's trying to trick somebody. <laughs> like he's 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 daring somebody to say, can you, like to direct him a little bit more. Uh, daring so I'm daring you to fire him. Basically. Yeah, I've, I've heard a story. I don't know how true it is. That uh, on the later movies in Marlon Brando's career, mm. uh, he would on his first day on the set. Mm. He would, on his first two takes, there would be one take where he was really trying, uh-huh. and there'd be one take where he was just doing whatever the whatever the fuck. Mm. And if the director could tell, uh-huh. he would give a good performance. <laughs> and if the director couldn't tell, he would just go insane on that film. Wow. And uh, uh, I, I got yeah, to, I once got to have dinner with Yujan uh, Palsy, who directed a Dry White Season. And, oh wow! Um, and she tells a story of working with Brando, who. Um, he was so bad at rem- this is pretty notorious. Yeah. He, he was so bad about no, uh, remembering his lines that he had a little radio in his ear. Oh yeah, and they would feed him his lines. So all of those like pensive moments where he's kind of like stroking his chin <laughs> and thinking, he's getting the dialogue in his ear. He's just waiting to say it. One of my favorite like behind the scenes photographs mm. ever is there's a you can find them of of the Godfather, 
and there are like scenes of Marlon Brando and Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall has Brando's lines taped to his chest. Wow. They're just off camera, like two inches below wherever the camera is, is Brando's lines <laughs> taped to his stomach. Gosh. Still uh, a great actor. Just couldn't remember his lines were shit or couldn't be bothered. Uh, Jeremy Irons was far more professional, from what I understand. I'm sure he at least memorized his lines. Yeah. Well, first of all, he's British. British actors are tend to be, and this is maybe a bit of a stereotype. It's a but school. It's, it's a, a school, school of thought. British British actors tend to be uh, much more devoted to their crafts as as workers. Yeah, they just, just give it their all. Yeah, just they're, they're devoted to whatever their their role is. So mm. it doesn't really matter what the role is; they're going to play it. Yeah, you see that in Anthony Hopkins. He he'll do whatever, and he's going to play it because that's the job. Yeah. So at this in this film, I guess someone told Jeremy Irons. Uh, play it up, play it up a little. Be, bit. be a big villain, like just well, have fun. And he took that ball mm-hmm. and he ran with it, and he is mincing like crazy and doing wild eyes and mm-hmm. creepy mouths and f- you know flouncing with his hands the entire time, and it's great. He's, yeah, just the gr- I've never seen him make th- like grimace and mug the way he does in this movie. I, it's it's like he's auditioning for the mask. Like yeah, he's like, what the f- <laughs> so so smoking at the beginning of the film. Mm. Profion and his uh, uh, right hand man, his Darth Vader, if you will, Damodar, Damodar, played by Bruce Payne, aka the bad guy from Passenger Fifty Seven, here wearing um, like, a to- laven- top- lavender lip liner. He's wearing he's wearing lavender lip liner, and he's wearing a a palette swapped version of Tom Hardy Tom Hardy's armor from Star Trek Nemesis. More or less, kind of insectile yeah, with, with, the, with the big shoulder thing. Yeah. And- um, and uh, he's just a stoic bad guy. I actually think he has a spectacularly terrible performance in this movie. Um, well, and unfortunately, they give him uh, like this monsterish feature that isn't scary at all. Like it looks really stupid. Yeah. So uh, over the course of the film, Jeremy Irons, in order to give Bruce Payne more incentive to do the bad things he does, he puts him like a demon in Bruce Payne's brain. Mm. And the idea is that will eventually kill you unless you. Yeah. Do my bidding, and every time the demon pops out and does evil demon things, it pops out of his ears, yeah, and he's like, like little two flowers, little, two little tentacles with eyeballs or like claws or whatever they are on the it end just, of them. It just looks stupid. Yeah. Like and, it's and they really embarrassing. Him, and they give him outsized ears as well. If you so, yeah. if you notice that. Anyway, I keep trying to get back to the plot. Profion has developed. Uh, the ability possibly to control dragons. And dragons are the most... They're basically weapons of mass destruction with free will. Yeah. So if he can control dragons, he can take over the Empire, and he really wants to take over the Empire because the Queen is very young and very idealistic. The Queen is played by Thora Birch, fresh off American Beauty, very young... Really yes, doesn't it. look like she knows what she's doing in this movie. Like no one told her what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like she just seems like she's like in the middle of like she's just kind of going through the lines. She's a better mm-hmm. actor than this. Like it's weird. Yeah, she she was only like eighteen here because she was only seventeen at, in American Beauty. So yeah. she was probably around the same age making mm-hmm. this. Um, so it's a few years before Ghost World. So. What happens, we learn, is in Dungeons and Dragons, in the movie, uh, there is a caste system, a very rigid caste system. And people Mm. who are magic users, uh, your royalty, your wizards, Mm. they are on top, and everyone else is basically a glorified slave. Which I kind of appreciate that structure. Mm. 
Because if you were a magic user, if you could control dragons and cast spells, you would be in charge, wouldn't you? Yeah. I've, you know, look at like X-Men or anything else or your underworld. Oh, no, we have magic, but we have to hide. We have to stay underground because or we'll they're be persecuted. in that case. If there was only like two people, yeah. then yeah, all the people who don't have magic could probably dogpile you real fast and yeah, kill but you. If, if but you if you're a, like half you the a, country, then yeah, you're going to you be on top of the world. you staff of doom, you just wave your staff and kill off a hundred people in one wave. Yeah. So they come after you once. <laughs> You'd be in charge. It's like the Harry Potter thing. So no, we live in a separate world. Why? Well, they Just live in take a sep- over that they world. They live in a separate world because humans suck and they don't want to be a part of it. I guess they just don't like people. Yeah, they don't want to have to deal with them one way or another. So you go do your own thing. We've got this whole other world that's way better. We just don't let you in. <laughs> Makes sense. Fine. We have smartphones and plumbing. Thora Birch wants to equalize the kingdom. She yeah. wants to, you know, basically make everyone equal and free. Doesn't that sound great? And of course, huge sequences are her trying to explain to the Senate why the Senate should give up their power. Mm. and give it to people who they think of as inferior. And, of course, Profian is just like, see? It's, it's bad. <laughs> that's our just, argument. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my whole point. I, I probably need to try. But the problem is the queen, as the queen, can control dragons. So in order to actually defeat her and take over the kingdom, he needs to control dragons too. And in order to do that, he needs to, A, get a map. That map leads to... The dragon rod. A, a, a dragon, well, the dragon's eye. Is what they really need. Oh, it's right. the eye of the dragon. It's like a oh, ruby right. the size of your fist. And uh, then they need to insert that into the rod, and then the rod becomes like this big no, magic they, wand that controls dragons. They need, they need to insert it into the door that leads to the vault where the rod is. I apologize. You're 100% yeah. correct. It's a, it's a little convoluted, but it's basically but one MacGuffin after another. It's the same basic structure and, as Raiders of the Lost Ark. You have to get yeah, this thing to get this thing to get this thing to get the all-powerful thing. Dandy structure. Structure Fine. is not the problem here. They pick up usually people on the way. Uh, snips and snails end up picking up a... Uh, a young wizard uh, whose name escapes me. Oh, like the the librarian wizard. Um, I want to say forgot it? her name. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anymore. Mm. Uh, is it Zoe McClellan? Yeah, it's Zoe McClellan. Oh, Zo- wasn't Zoe McClellan like the the hot elf chick? No, Zoe McClellan is the wizard. The okay. the elf lady is Kristen Wilson. Kristen Wilson. Okay. So they pick up they pick up a, a wizard who of course looks down on the thieves, but she's kind of a low level wizard anyway. She's basically a novice, mm. uh, and uh, they need to find the gem. And also, an elf is hired to track them down mm. for the queen. That elf is played by Kristen Wilson, uh, and, and they uh, also accumulate in a bar a dwarf uh, just outside a bar. A okay. dwarf, and the dwarf is taller than most of them, but he hunches. That's fine. Whatever. <laughs> It's, it's not a great system. There's, there's, there's no hard and fast rule that a dwarf has to, in fantasy world, has to be just a little person. Yeah, but when you think about it, you're really going out of your way not to give a little person work. That's true. That, that, that's that's kind of a dick especially, move. Especially considering, like, you know, Lord of the Rings, they use, like, all this really expensive technology and, like, to, yeah, to, camera trickery to, to, to shrink people. To assure they don't have to hire any little person which, actors. Which is also fucked up, yeah. but at the very least, they put forth the effort into it. Here, they could have just hired a little person and they didn't. Yeah. So... I don't know. That kind of bugged me when I was rewatching it. But um, how do they go off and they and they go on uh, various uh, well missions. various missions? But the best of which is when they run into Richard O'Brien from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard O'Brien, who was Riff Raff in the Rocky Horror Show, he also re- wrote all the music, reprising his role. And uh, <laughs> basically, he's the leader of the Thieves Guild, mm. and he has built 
Uh, basically a, a double dare a, maze of death. Yeah, a booby trap chamber. <laughs> Which is funny. Didn't Reginald Bryan host a game show that was basically all about like physical challenges? Oh, did he? No, I don't, I don't remember I that. I that somewhere. I don't know how true that is. Uh, I'll, I'll see if I can look that up. <laughs> the, um, the Richard O'Brien game show. I, doesn't that sound great? Hold on. Let me see. If, I, I feel like that's going to be true. And, and again, yeah, they have to get MacGuffin after MacGuffin. Um, there's a big climax where, yes, of course, the bad guy gets control of the dragons. I'm not spoiling anything here. And uh, <laughs> and there's a big dragon fight, and dragons are firing, you know, CGI dragons are firing fireballs at each other, and wizards are saying things like, put up the shields! And <laughs> fire! They fire fireballs out of their hands, and fire, dragons plummet out of the sky and get impaled on spires, and and it's just not exciting at all. The, thi- uh, the and, crystal maze. The Crystal Maze. He did a show called The Crystal Maze from 1990. Uh, I guess they had a bunch of different uh, hosts last... over the years, but he was All he right. was definitely a host of something. Oh, oh you said over the years. If, if it was a well, one-season wonder, it's... we could do it on uh, Cancel Too Soon. No, there, there have been like 11 seasons of it. Like There was a bunch in the 90s, and I guess they rebooted it recently with Richard Iowate. All right. Um, but um, in any case, so that might be an in-joke. Like, May, yeah, like, so. like uh, Richard Dawson playing himself in uh, The Running Man, so and Richard you, O'Brien playing the uh, the game show host in Dungeons and Dragons. You know, if, if there were any like wit to this movie at all, then maybe. Here's the thing about this movie. Mm. This movie is. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say the nice things about it right now. All right, uh, it's bright. Mm. Uh, the composer. Uh, is working overtime to oh, try to sell yes. everything. Like, the composer did their job. <laughs> There's a huge bombastic score to yeah, this Yeah, they really are trying to make it seem like the movie is way bigger and more exciting than mm-hmm. it actually is. And it, all credit Ju- goes to... Justin Kane Burnett, who did video game music. Yep, just good job there. Mm-hmm. But so much of this movie feels half-assed. In fact, some, some of this movie feels like they forgot to film it. There's a scene early on where they've got this magic map. Uh-huh. And they don't know how to read it, and they're bickering over how to read it at a bar. And then Justin Whalen and uh, oh, I already forgot her name again. Justin Whalen and Zoe McClellan get sucked into the map, like magically. Mm. And then the scene continues without them for several minutes. And then later on in the next scene, they pop out of it arguing about all the exposition that they got. And then they give all that exposition to snails. So what happened in that map? I don't know. They, they keep talking scene, about yeah. how they ran into like a magical creature there. It sounds like it was interesting. It sounds like what they did was, you know how in a movie like someone will acquire some really interesting piece of information, but not everyone in the movie has that information yet. Mm. So after they leave the Cave of Wonders or the uh, the magical mm. blobbity blue or whatever, they have to go back to all their friends, and then you cut that dialogue out, and then you just cut to everyone listening and going, mm. so we need to get the ruby, yeah. or they have a follow-up question right. or something. Here, they took out the scene that's relevant and interesting and left in the bit where Where they they boringly explain it to everyone else. (laughs) That's a good point. It's amazing to me. And they did this like twice. There's like a couple of Mm. scenes where they just cut the bit that made sense. There are two major tragic flaws to Dungeons & Dragons. Two? Uh, One is the entire cast. Uh Jeremy Irons notwithstanding. Jeremy Irons is and, at least having may, fun. And maybe Richard O'Brien. You could leave Richard O'Brien. Richard O'Brien's fun. Everyone else is playing the smarmy smartass character. Yeah, they're all playing the same person. Yeah. And Well, uh, Marlon Wayans is playing the dumbass character. All right. But that's just as cloying. 
they're they're all really obnoxious. They're all really jokey, and uh, not even in that sort of they all sound the same kind of witty Joss Whedon sort of way. Because mm-hmm. at least that is like a, a flip sense of humor. Well, and I get that one because they're all, especially in Joss Whedon shows and movies, they tend mm. to all be friends, so yeah. they have a cadence with one another that makes sense. Mm. Here, no, here, most here of them don't all, know each they're other. They're all just shrill, and if you're going to have like this ensemble of characters, you need a bunch of different character types, right? So they can all kind of bounce off one another and have a very distinct point of view. Look at Conan the Destroyer, for goodness sake. Yeah. That's, every, like, say what you will, the the band that they put together is full yes. of very distinct personalities yeah, and, and they, all bring and, different things to a conversation. And you put them in, like, sort of a glory shot on a poster or something, and it looks like a ragtag group of interesting people. Well, and that's, that's, that's one of the better things about even, say, the Marvel movies. Even though they're all basically kind of flip, mm. Rocket Raccoon will have a different funny bone mo yeah, at the end of a scene than Iron Man will or than Thor will. And so you put them in a scene together, you want to hear what they'll say. Uh, in, in Roger Ebert's review, he said, looking at the Avengers is like looking at the champions at a dog show. It's like, one's a Great Dane, one's a little tiny dog, and they all look really weird, but, you know, they're all champions. <laughs> <laughs> Don't remember that at all. That's no, that, that's the way he described the, the glory shot of the, the Avengers. Yeah. It's like a, looking at a dog show. Um, here... You can see that's kind of what they're going for. They have two thieves. Okay, friends, too. They're kind of the same. But you also have a wizard novice. So she's going to you know, be a little bit more judicious and studied. You have a badass elf warrior who's going to be sort of s- stern. You have a, a like a, a drunken bruiser in the, the form of the, the dwarf character. Uh, but they all behave the same. And they all play their parts so unbelievably badly that you can't ever get any sense of any of their characters at all, and you just hate every one of them. I hate Justin Whalen in this movie. I want to <laughs> sm- really smack the smarm right off his he, face. I, I, he's trying so hard. It's just like when you watch... Um, it's like when you watch Michael Beck in Xanadu. They're just so miscast as the person they need <laughs> like to be. Michael, well, Michael Beck at least you know, has the benefit of being kind of a dark actor. But he's not in a dark movie. No, Xanadu is a very light movie. They mm. need someone who's bright. They needed like a, I mean, he was way too young at the time, but a Hugh Jackman type. Oh, they need someone who's just fun and happy to be there and spry on their feet. Mm. And Michael Beck is dark and broody. He's way mm. too, he's a different actor than that. You know, you need Justin Whalen, I see why you thought he could do this. He's handsome. He's He's, he's he's snails. You cast two snails. Yeah. When you needed one Ridley and a snail, that's your problem. Yeah. That was that was your big mistake. Yeah. Thora Birch is lost in this material. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jeremy Irons doesn't care. <laughs> he's no. like he's just swinging for the fences. I think if they had assembled a better cast and maybe got a better director, somebody would have pointed him in a good direction. I assure you that if this movie had a better director and a better cast, it would probably have been better. I feel well, like that's, yeah, kind, that's of, true. So the, kind of very the, the whole, the whole cast and you need to up the budget on this thing by tenfold. Oh, my God. Because this, this is the cheapest looking. This is supposed to be like high fantasy epic. Now, mm-hmm. you can do a high fantasy epic on a budget. Yeah. It's possible. Oh, yeah. You have to just find interesting locales. You have to add sort of an air of mystery to it. Like, you can have, like, one really good makeup job on, like, one sort of monstrous character lurking in a cave. They can sort of, like, peer out of the cave and you have this big, like, forbidding, you know, outdoor shot, like Mm -hmm. in a desert or something. And that's a good way to build a lot of atmosphere. It's cheap, but it's effective. This is going for something that was supposed to look like Lord of the Rings. It's got castles and dragons. Yeah, Yeah, really gigantic. 
But they clearly weren't working with a big enough budget to achieve any of these things. They had things. $45 million in this, and I honestly don't know what part it went to. Because sure, it, the, probably just talent. The produ- the, most of the talent wasn't that famous. Well, that's true. Yeah. Like Jeremy Irons got, I'm certainly got paid. Yeah, Mar- Marlon Waynes was the second biggest star. Yeah, maybe, I bet Thor yeah. Birch and Bruce Payne got money. Mm. But like, this was not a huge cast. I don't see because the the production design is about on par with Xena Warrior Princess. Nothing to be ashamed of, mm. but not really but as this is a rich movie. Co- yeah. yeah, not as rich and detailed as you want from a movie. And the CG ranges from passable to crap, even for the time. Yeah. Like, because like you, you watch CG movies like from the '90s in particular when they started to. In the 80s, there was a little CGI, but they tried to only incorporate it where it made sense because it was mm-hmm. expensive and you only wanted to get a few shots of it. Everything else was practical. In the 90s, especially after Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park, lots of movies tried to incorporate lots more CGI, and there were a lot of growing pains in that period and a lot of CGI that looked fucking terrible. Yeah, there's a CGI car- uh, like monster in um, Mortal Kombat. Oh, Reptile. Reptile looks terrible. Yeah, yeah, even at the time, he looked terrible. It was pe- just... pe- yeah, people, even people were laughing at that thing. So, 2000s only ground. CGI is actually looking pretty good. We just came off of The Matrix, and say what you will about the movie, The Phantom Menace was a major leap forward for digital effects. Yeah, yeah. So, this is looking really cheesy and bad, and it's really just particularly awful when you know enough about Dungeons & Dragons to know what you should be geeking out over. There's a mm-hmm. bit where they have to raid... Uh, Damodar's castle or outpost mm. or whatever. Oh, it's got beholders. Yeah, they talk about like, oh, there are beholders outside. If you don't know what a beholder is, beholders are really creepy and gross. They're floating heads that are basically one giant eye and then a bunch of tentacles with other eyes on it and they can see mm. and they have magic and they're just really, in Dungeons and Dragons, they're very threatening. They're very mm. scary monsters. The- Here, they mentioned that they're beholders, and everyone who knows anything about D&D is going, ooh, finally, we're getting some something cool. And then there's a shot of a beholder going, huh? And then flying off camera, that's it. That's all we get from the beholder. That's all we fuck. Oh my god, can they, you imagine? They, used, they did beholders better in Futurama. They did beholders way better in Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, that's true. And yeah, even then it doesn't hands. do much. It's just scary looking. Yeah. Like, it's a creepy monster in Big Jump mm. on Little China. And he, in this movie, it's just... I, I'm actually offended that they try. <laughs> like, at, at that point, just cut it out. Who cares? Like, it's yeah, more disappointing. I, I interviewed Kevin Feige uh, for Thor Ragnarok. Mm. Uh, Kevin Feige, of course, is the head of Marvel Studios. And I asked him because... You know, it's a Thor movie, and he's out in space, and it's getting kind of weird. Are we ever going to see the character Beta Ray Bill? Beta Ray Bill is an alien character from the comics who... He's a long, gra- elongated skull face, yeah, it looks but like it's also like a, horse. a Thor. Yeah. Well, what happened was Thor's hammer can be picked up, and its power can be used uh, by anyone who's worthy of the power of Thor. As mm-hmm. we saw in Avengers Endgame, another character does just that. Beta Ray Bill gets in a fight with Thor, and usually when people try to grab Thor's hammer, they just can't lift it. Mm. Beta Ray Bill just picks it up and becomes Thor because Beta Ray Bill is awesome. <laughs> so I thought to myself, why don't we have Beta Ray Bill in here? And there's actually like a little quick like homage to Beta Ray Bill and like some production design, like one like statue looks like him. Mm. And I asked him, we were we gonna do Beta Ray Bill? And he was like, actually, we we were gonna put him in the movie. Mm. But the movie really wasn't built around him. He would have had a really short cameo, and it would have been so disappointing to Beta Ray Bill fans, it wasn't worth putting in there at all. And I was like, yeah, that's well, how that's why you should have left the beholders out of Dungeons and Dragons. Beta Ray Bill fan all eight of them. Oh no, Beta Ray Bill has has a small but very religious fan base. Fine. 
He's, he's, everything he's, does. He's a Who popular cares anymore? He's a fun character, and I like him. If every if everything has a fan base, then why are we bothering giving any credence to any of them? Just do whatever you want. Well, yes, yeah. so, someone's going to be disappointed. Someone's going to love it. Whatever I digress. You do. My point is the holders aren't treated very well. Yeah. Uh, well, the Dungeons and Dragons, thanks to my knowledge of the monster manual, is full of all kinds of weird, cool monsters. There's yeah. clay. You know, there's like earth golems and all hundreds of different kinds of dragons, green slimes, Tiamat, and, one of the coolest uh, damn dragons uh, ever, uh, rust monsters and rot grub and demons. There's something called a Glabrazoo, which has like four arms and a dog head and horns and stuff. All that sounds awesome. Put that well, in a movie. Well, they don't have the special effects to do that stuff. Or clearly don't have the budget to oh, do sorry, it. Sorry, for $45 million, you can do a lot of that practical and it would look cool. Yeah, you look true. at You look at, there's a, there's look at, look at um, the, the four-armed monster in, to cite it again, Mortal Kombat. Yeah, there's a, a cool little... looking practical effect yeah, of, he, of, of a demon monster. He, look, he looks cool enough that I accept him in a movie. Yeah. Like, I totally buy it. I think there's actually, like, a lot of people are really frustrated with how fantasy has been treated in movies because fantasy is hard to make look real. Yeah, it is. It's true, and some movies. I mean, that's do... that, that's why Lord of the Rings was such a, a boon for, to so many fantasy fans. They actually had the budget and the technology yeah. to finally make some of that stuff look really convincing. I hate yeah. the design of that movie. I disagree with I, you on that. Well, I, everybody disagrees with me on that. It's fine. I'm but saying, uh, <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm not gonna. I, I think they're ugly as sin. Sometimes I've got your back, and sometimes I think you're crazy cuckoo pants. Mm, but uh, I'll, I think, I'll, I'll take it. But there are lots of movies that actually do a pretty good job with a very low budget, and mm. yeah, you're not gonna get. All the huge stuff, but you're also not going to overextend yourself and try to do something you can't do. Yeah. So you look at something like uh, the only good Albert Pune movie, The Sword and the Sorcerer, <laughs> which is very lo-fi, but they knew what to spend money on and what not to. So yeah. the sets look really, really cool, and there's only a handful of monsters, and they look very practical and very, very cool. Mm -hmm. Dungeons and Dragons wanted to be bigger than it was, and no one told them, "No, you're small." There are a couple of straight-to-video. I don't know if they're officially sequels or not, mm -hmm. but there are a couple of straight-to-video live-action Dungeons and Dragons movies. I think they premiered on the Sci-Fi Network that, that followed this film. Yeah, again, I don't know if they're like canonical with this film. Like Snails is somewhere out in it somewhere, yeah. but like there were a couple. One of them I saw about half of one of them once. Mm -hmm. It's called Dungeons and Dragons: Wrath of the Dragon God. And while I would mm -hmm. hesitate to call it a quote-unquote good movie, <laughs> it was better than this because they were writing for their own budget. Yeah. They mm -hmm. knew that, listen, we're not going to be able to afford a whole bunch of cool stuff, so we need to give the characters some personality, and we need to give them more dialogue, we need to let that drive scenes, because we can't afford to let terrible-looking CGI dragons embarrass mm. us. Because the climax of Dungeons & Dragons is just a bunch of, like, Spyro the Dragon-looking, like, <laughs> monsters flying around in the sky unconvincingly. Mm. It looks terrible. It's a it terrible looks, climax. Yeah, it just looks... And I can kind of see the editors, uh, like, straining against the material a little mm -hmm. bit. Like, they're really trying to edit it in a dynamic way. Mm -hmm. They're trying. I, again, I, I can't really fault... I guess I can't fault the director because it's their film, but mm -hmm. I, I can't fault a lot of the people who worked on this. Like I said, the the, the composer is doing their work. Oh, I yeah. think the editor is also doing their work. They're trying. I think I th the I photographers think are trying really hard unless, with what little they have. I think unless the editor had the material and just didn't use it for some reason, like mm -hmm. that scene where they go in the map, that had better either have like been lost mm -hmm. like in a fire 
or they never shot it for a variety of dumb reasons. Because if you had that footage and you didn't use it, what the fuck? It's so <laughs> obviously... Sometimes they'll sell a scene, like the editor will sell a scene in a way that the scene doesn't permit. Like there's a scene where they're crawling around, uh, uh, I think the wizard is crawling around on the ground trying to get the scroll. Okay. And then Bruce Payne, uh, like the, the, we're on the ground with her, this is the shot, we're on the ground with her, she's trying to get the scroll, scroll's in the foreground, and then Bruce Payne, like dramatically, and there's music and there's editing, he like steps into the foreground next to the scroll. And mm. I'm like, why aren't you stepping on the scroll? <laughs> That's the shot. The shot is he steps on it so oh. that she can't take it away. Mm. If you don't do that, she can take it away. And none of this makes any dramatic sense. There's a reason we have these tried and true shots is because <laughs> that's how you sell the image. Oh, but if you just do the shot, but you don't actually do the blocking, the shot makes no sense anymore. <laughs> so you don't need the shot. Why did you put it in there? <laughs> I don't understand. Some of this movie is so amazingly inept, like I just don't understand mm. it. Oh, golly. <sighs> now, Dungeons & Dragons, mm. this version... With mm. these characters, yeah. with this story, can easily be remade. Yeah. In 2019, if you're willing, to, if like some studio is willing to fork a lot of money into it, mm -hmm. and they're do, trying to do I'm a sure, lot of big special I'm sure effects, trying to do a big one. rewrite it so it's paced well, mm -hmm. uh, rewrite the characters so they're real, good. good characters. Yeah. Same character is just good now. Yeah, the character and types that, there's nothing wrong with. Just give them some nuance. And and Dungeons and Dragons fans would not have felt any pain over that. That would have been a totally decent movie. Yeah. Again, the, the, the basic structure is yeah. more or less fine. Mm. It's just, you didn't have the money, you didn't have the cast, and frankly, yeah. at some point, you should and, have realized you shouldn't have tried. And there's no... And here's the great thing about Dungeons & Dragons. There's no, like, one central character arc or mythology that you're kind of beholden to. Yeah, you can call it's any just, fantasy it's just, story. Yeah, it's called Dungeons and Dragons. Just a, a world with certain you know, certain types of characters live in this world, but it's so broad that you could do just about anything with this thing. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised that even even after this one tanked, because there was all this talk, D&D, &D, the movie, D&D, &D, the movie, it's going to come. And they finally, it finally came and it tanked. People hated it at the time. It was a big flop. Oh, huge. Um, and I think that soured the property when it shouldn't have, no. you can make one of these films every month and keep fantasy junkies satisfied until the end of time. Well, I think nowadays, now that we're spending more money on marquee television, Dungeons Dragons mm. TV series wouldn't be a bad idea. You yeah, could do sure. that. You could do an anthology series. You could do a different one every season mm. or whatever. Just have someone make some shit up and just use the iconography of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. It works fine. And again, they did do a couple of like straight to TV or video mm. follow ups. At least half of one was okay. <laughs> Again, I only saw half of All one, right. but it was okay. Like, I wasn't offended by it. Mm. But yeah, this is... There's one thing of note is that um, in this incredibly light, insubstantial, cheesy-looking, family-friendly, terrible movie, they do kill Marlon Wayans. They do. They kill one of the major characters. Yeah, it's a big noble sacrifice and everything, and he dies, and it's really sad, and mm. memory serves. Justin Whalen gets to fall on his knees and give the most embarrassing no I've ever seen in a movie. And and at first, when I remember, I remember when I first saw this. I saw this like when it was on home video, like after it originally came out. I was. Actually, I saw this thing in theaters on I, opening day. Oh, good for you. Yeah. I missed it, but it, uh, I saw it on home video, and I remember seeing that scene. I'm going. Well, kudos. Uh -huh. You know, you, you did something 
a little daring, a little mm. a little unlikely. And then it ends after they've saved the day with them in a graveyard saying mm. goodbye to snails. And by the way, they've saved the kingdom and he's going to be hero of the kingdom and they've got all the money and power in the world. And mm. uh, Snails' tombstone is a rock with snails carved onto it with crayon. Yeah. Like they couldn't <laughs> get cheaped out on the, on the tombstone of all things. Yeah. And then they're going to leave a ruby the size of your fist like on mm. the the grave and i'm just like that's going to be there for like an hour before someone notices and steals mm. and i don't know why you're doing that and then all of a sudden the ruby glows and the word snails evaporates off of the rock and the elf says do not question your gift and then they all put their hands on the rock mm. and then they turn into pure energy and fly away like at the end of the MST3K episode Laser Blast <laughs> and they just <laughs> which, float away which is supposed to be the last episode it, well that was the original idea yeah. and they just fly away and the implication I guess is that Snails is in another dimension or yeah, whatever they, they all the, ascended yeah hmm. no no they didn't earn that yeah that no, was that, that, that shit at it all. also didn't come from anywhere it's like oh and we can also ascend really? Wait. how? what? why? what does that mean? What do you get from that? Uh, this terrible movie. It's it's so much. It's I remembered I remembered this movie being not quite as bad as its reputation. Like it's just kind of silly or whatever. Mm. And then I watch it. And I'm just like it's mostly just inept. It's yeah. It's, it's not. I, I'm not angry at it. It's just inept. Well, it, it's it. It's one of those things where people I think were. Kind of, like expectations were high. D and D the movie. It's like sure. okay, that's that's got to be something, right? And it turned out to be nothing. So a lot of people dogpiled on it because there was a, a disappointment element to it. Yeah. I, you know, I wasn't disappointed by. it. I was disappointed because I watched a bad movie. <laughs> I don't think it ruined D and D or anything. And I had no expectations for a D and D movie. My only you know, precedent for this was that TV, that animated TV show. Well, you know, uh, you know what movie wasn't disappointing. Hmm. The Adventures of Robin Hood. Michael Curtis's The Adventures of Robin Hood. Yeah, we were debating what are we going to do and for our double feature here. And our, our, my first thought... It's you, so, you, so you stupid. Had a, you had a, a little bit of a bonkers first thought. but My you know, first thought was, was the movie Lincoln. Steven, Spielberg, Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. Because I got really hung up when I was rewatching the Dungeons and Dragons and all the scenes of the Queen trying to convince a corrupt Senate mm. to enact laws that are against their personal self-interests but are indeed for the good of the land. And I kept thinking about how that's basically Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. And it's all about trying to convince the Senate to end slavery even though there's nothing in it for those rich white slave owners. Right. <laughs> there's like nothing in it for most of them. So... It was really uphill battle. It's a great movie, and I love that movie, but, like, you talked me down off the ledge of that one, because that was a bit of a well, stretch. It's, it's a bit of a stretch. Like, if Dungeons & Dragons had been, like, about that, like, if they had opened the movie with that, and that was sort of, like, everything that the drama yeah. was writing on. It's a bit more important, yeah. Yeah. No, it was, but it's such a small element of D&D that, yeah. yeah, maybe not. You wanted to go Shakespeare again, because you always do. Of course. Who doesn't, who doesn't ever want to go Shakespeare? I just don't um, want to run out of Shakespeare, so I, I want to so. spread well, it out a little bit. I wanted to think of, you know, this is about... An an evil wizard trying to usurp the throne. So what's a great Shakespeare play about an evil usurper? How about Richard the third? Profion and Richard, I, you know, Jeremy Irons probably in some interview said, Oh yes, it's very much like Richard the third. This Profion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, I also thought that was a bit of a stretch. And so what we decided to do was let's take, 
let's try to find a historical epic action movie with some political undertones. And uh, about thieves. About and, and about thieves doesn't hurt. And we very quickly landed on The Adventures of Robin Hood. It wasn't the first Robin Hood movie, but it is arguably still the greatest. Uh, you know what? Far and away is still the greatest. There's been a few decent ones since, but this is the iconic uh, one. This Ro- is the one that like captures the spirit mm. and the iconography and the imagery and the characters mm. in a very classical, this is exactly what it's supposed to be like, mm. and everything else that comes after it, even if it's good or okay, is just dipping into mm. the same well. I feel like, you know, no matter how great a Dracula we get in the future, Bela Lugosi will always be Dracula. No matter how great a Robin Hood we get in the future, I don't care if you're Kevin Costner. Or a, or a sexy fox. Or, or even, yeah, or even, even a, a furry fantasy. <laughs> Disney's you Robin will, Hood is a good movie. You will never beat Errol Flynn. No. Errol Flynn is Robin Hood forever. Yeah, basically. And this movie is Robin Hood forever. This is what Robin Hood looks like. This is how Robin Hood behaves. This is how Robin Hood is paced. This is how Robin Hood sword fights. And it's, This is how he swings on vines. And this movie came out in 1938. 38. This, is over, 38. this is over 80 years old, this movie. Mm. And yeah, okay, there are things about it that wouldn't be done today. There are things about it that, you know would be shot perhaps more grandly or mm. this fighting might be a little bit more elaborate, but it's paced like a maniac. Like it's just, it's mm. a blockbuster film with tons of excitement and romance and action and comedy. It's got every single thing you want. There's also tons of stuff in it that you wouldn't do today because it was insanely dangerous. <laughs> you- well, Errol Flynn was game. Well, Errol Flynn was game, and of course Basil Rathbone, who played uh, Sir uh, Guy of Gisborne, yeah. was game. But the people who were the most game were the stunt guys. Here's how much of a badass action movie Robin Hood is. Because you hear about, like, oh, isn't that cool? All those guys in, like, those fight movies are doing their own fights. Um, the stunt guys on The Adventures of Robin Hood were paid $150 per arrow to be shot on camera. <laughs> so they got a rapid fire yeah, to get their they, paycheck. They were actually they were they they wore pads, uh-huh. but they weren't that thick because they couldn't like look like they were wearing pads. But they had and, to stick in their bodies those arrows. Yeah. So like this. So what they didn't they didn't cheap out and just cut to like a guy with an arrow in his chest holding it going ah mm-hmm. whatever. There are guys who are doing an entire scene. They're like giving a speech, and in the middle of the speech, they are shot with an arrow in one take by a professional archer. <laughs> Shoots them in the chest and then they fall over and die. And they were paid 150 bucks for that. And that happens throughout the whole movie. That's dangerous. You'd never do that now. Here's the thing about arrows: they're deadlier than bullets. Like you, I, they're, they're spears I, that I fly through the air. I remember seeing on a, a TV program called "That's Incredible" that I watched a lot as a kid, where they just did like live demonstrations of weird shit, and it was a, a wonderful show. It's the first time I was introduced to the notion of putting a laser sight on a gun. It's like, oh, here's yeah. a laser sight. Here's a gun. Now you got them in one place. I remember. I remember. I first saw that in Terminator, and it blew my mind. Yeah, I was like, yeah. oh wow. And that's they, probably irresponsible. And they said, okay, we have a, an an archer and and a rifleman here, and he has a handgun. He's going to pull out a handgun. He's going to sh- on the, on a stage, and you mm-hmm. know, say he's got protection. He's going to shoot a sandbag, and they have like slow motion on the sandbag, and the, the bullet just goes. Just yeah. enters the sandbag and stays there. Now he's going to fire an arrow at a sandbag, and the sandbag is totally obliterated. Well, a sandbag <laughs> is not a human body. 
The sandbag mm. is absorbing like the friction energy of that bullet mm. in yeah. a different way than your guts will. I was either about to way, say, not much differently than your guts no, no, will. I don't want to get shot with either of those things. Mm. Is my point. That doesn't mean like bullets are fine. Like no, <laughs> don't get shot with either of those things. The arrows are very deadly and dangerous. Mm. It's incredible that the movie was made that way. So. Uh, Anyway, this is this adaptation of the many stories told about Robin Hood. Well, um, it's, it's essentially Ivanhoe, but it's yeah. essentially Ivanhoe. But they take inspiration from a lot of different places. Maid Marian wasn't always a part of Robin Hood. In fact, there was some debate about whether to put her in this movie. Mm. I'm glad um, they did because Olivia ha- Havilland is great. She's she's really excellent in it. Um, the story of Robin Hood, of course, is uh, King Richard's is off uh, is off at the Crusades. Yeah, this is he, uh, the, the 12th century. Uh, King Richard is off at the Crusades, and he has left England in the hands of, actually, Richard Longchamp. But he is thrown off the throne by Prince John, who is this sniveling little coward. And he... <laughs> Played by Claude Rains. Yes! Claude Rains... Claude Rains is... Uh, uh, let's stop and appreciate Claude Rains for a second. We still appreciate literally everyone in this cast. Well, just, like, shit, everybody, but, right. but yeah. Um, Claude Rains is one of the great actors, period. He, he worked with Michael Curtis again when he made Casablanca. He was the the... the a completely cynical general. Uh, he was the uh, corrupt senator, and Mister mm. Smith goes to Washington. Yeah. He was the the voice of the original Invisible Man. Well, and he did the physical stuff too. Well, yeah, mm. but you know, what I mean, he, he, his face wasn't on camera, but that was him in the rapping. In any case, mm. um, incredible character actor, just mm. absolutely wonderful in every single thing that he did, and he's just a sniveling <laughs> worm in this, and I love him. Yeah, Casablanca, this this gun's pointed right at your heart. That is my least vulnerable spot. <laughs> God, I love God. I, I, love can't, I cannot believe you've you invited me into a place with there is illegal gambling. Here you're winning, sir. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so great. Um, so Prince John takes over the throne of England mm. by force, uh, and he starts taxing the shit out of everybody. <laughs> and Robin of Loxley, who is a nobleman, mm. the landowner, defies him. Mm. And he's in this really weird place where he's technically a nobleman, he's technically of power, but he has his land seized away from him, and that basically makes him a pauper. Yeah. But he's still got all of the credibility that comes with it. So he's just he's in this weird place that doesn't really get explored terribly well, where he's technically ruling class, but also has literally nothing. Mm. So it's an interesting dichotomy. He rallies the people. He there's a great scene right at the beginning where he walks right into Prince John's party with a stag, like he, he killed the king's deer and just plops it down. And he which, just which was spoofed in. I mean, a lot of this was spoofed in Men in Tights, yeah, but it's um, still damn funny. Uh, but and he he comes in and he tells him this is the equivalent. Okay, this is the equivalent of like uh, uh, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Walking into like a White House press conference with a stag that he had shot and killed, and like throwing it on the ground and telling and telling well, Donald, hog, hog, hogtied Eric, telling Donald Trump to his face that you are you are a traitor to the country, mm. and every single person who isn't trying to take you down right now is also a traitor to the country, and then fighting his way out of the room. <laughs> and it's like you speak treason, sir. To which Robin Hood perfectly replies, fluently. It's <laughs> one of the great exchanges in movie history. It's the most cocky, wonderful thing. It's fun to think of this movie in like modern political terms, 
Because what we have here is, you know, and this is one of the reasons well, why Robin Hood never goes away is because mm-hmm. there's always a sense of being oppressed by a corrupt government that mm-hmm. never entirely well, goes away. Uh, Robin Hood is a class hero. He's he's a, a political champion. He wants to fight for the disenfranchised. He steals from the rich and gives to the poor. Yeah. That's the line. And as such, he's always going to have... As long as there are oppressed people, he's always going to be a hero for the oppressed. Right. But, like, if you try to, like, take Robin Hood today and you look at the people who are trying to speak truth to power and the people who are trying to rally the people who are underrepresented by our Mm. political system. And then you just try to imagine them doing Robin Hood stuff. Like, there's a scene in Robin Hood, an iconic scene in Robin Hood, where they can't find Robin Hood. He knows Sherwood Forest too well and everyone loves them and they're taking care of him. How do we get Robin Hood out in the open? Aha! Robin Hood is one of the greatest archers in the land. We will hold an archery contest, and we are going to get him when when as, he won't resist that. Mm. So we're going to bring Robin Hood out in the open, and when he when he reveals himself, we'll arrest him. Imagine, if you will, Donald Trump <laughs> trying to figure Wants to out flush out Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, Elizabeth Warren. It turns out like Elizabeth Warren, like how do we get Elizabeth Warren like out in the open? Like she's too well protected by her various liberal cronies. Okay, turns out Elizabeth Warren is a master Overwatch player. Now, if we have an Overwatch <laughs> tournament, she won't gonna, be able to resist. She's, she won't be able to resist that shit. She's too good a Junkrat. Like, she's going to bring in her Junkrat, man, and she's just going to steamroll over everyone using Goat's Comp. So, once we've got her using Goat... So, my point but is, you that just, would be absurd. You used a lot of words. My point is, that would be absurd. Mm. But it's over the top and delightful. Yeah. Because Robin Hood is... He's vain, oh. but he earns it. Uh, it uh, yeah, he's vain for good reason. A, a, he looks like Errol Flynn, you know, yeah. sexy in those tights. Um, I think Errol Flynn is one of those Hollywood stars that has, like, a really horrendous reputation for being a, a Lothario. Oh, oh. Uh, uh, a, like, if, like his, his you know score, I think, is, like, higher than just about any other actors in history. And if you know anything about it, it really gross. Yeah, like, there's, a lo- there's a lot of really gross stuff, There were, it. like, secret, like, one-way mirrors or two-way mm-hmm. mirrors, like, in his house that nobody knew about and Yuck. until he died. And, like, it's there, he's he was a gross man in a lot of ways. <laughs> Uh, and that's only the stuff he, I can he, I can say with certainty. Yeah, he, There's a lot of rumors that he got around moved. honestly. He also got around dishonestly. Yeah. Um, but in but the uh, 30s in, in particular, he mm, was a god. Yeah, he he was totally dashing, completely wonderful, and perfect casting for this version of Robin Hood because you know Robin Hood, he's a class hero, but we want to see our class heroes be completely untouchable. I feel like Robin Hood in this movie, there's there's danger. He gets into fights. Mm-hmm. He gets he gets arrested he, once. Like he almost dies. And... Uh, I I never get the sense that he's actually in any kind of real peril. Well, but that's what we want. That's the power that's, of Robin Hood. Yeah, Robin, yeah. Robin Hood, even within the story itself. Mm. His name is Robin of Loxley. Robin Hood mm. was supposed to be like a a, a dangerous sounding nickname. He's a figure that the poor could rally behind. He becomes a figurehead. Hmm. We yeah. want our figureheads. We need a few figureheads. Yeah. We shouldn't have only figureheads because then we're just not facing reality. But if like, like Captain America is like probably the close equivalent in like pop culture today. Well, I would say Superman. But well, yeah. super, well, Superman movies aren't as popular as Captain America movies right now. But whatever. It's I'll just in ter- one half a dozen of the in, other. In terms of like a figurehead character that 
I don't necessarily want to see made realistic. <laughs> That's Superman. Yeah, I, I want him to be just an untouchable god who does everything well and enjoys doing it. Mm-hmm. That you mm. know what? I, fine. Like, whatever you, what, you pick a different character, but I'll just go. So that's with why it. Man of Steel sucks so hard. <laughs> I don't. One, one of the one of the reasons. I don't hate Man of Steel. I, that movie Superman sucks, but whatever. Anyway, but yeah, we need these icons. We need these bastions of virtue mm-hmm. and heroism and uh, unassailable virtue. Yeah, uh, and we also want them to be sexy. <laughs> Yeah. Do you know why? Because then we want to be around him. It's not just like, it's. he's not telling you to eat your broccoli. He's telling you like, hey, we're going to go beat up corrupt priests yeah, like, and like shoot corrupt royal guards and steal money. And we're going to do all this really, and we're going to have like, parties hey, in the woods. Hey, and, kid, are you hungry? I'm so hungry. I haven't eaten in months. We're going to steal the principal's candy. <laughs> Okay, Robin Hood, let's go steal the principal's candy. <laughs> He's great. And on top of it all, the movie is just a fucking delight. It is Technicolor, and mm. I don't think people appreciate what a wonder Technicolor was. <laughs> especially, well, especially in 38. Well, in yeah. thir- okay, so obviously, you know, the initial days of cinema, we had black and white. And a lot of people think color wasn't really, really invented until like the 20s. But in actuality, people were tinting black and white cinema right from the beginning. Melier was doing this. Um, A lot of those tints don't survive and people have tried to sort of recreate some of them. Mm. Who knows how accurate it is. But in any case, they were always playing with color. But it was for a long time it was hand painted on. Mm. When Technicolor came around, movies stopped looking like watercolor colors Mm. and they started looking punchy (laughs) they started looking vibrant and like a rainbow and like some of the colors were always a little off there's actually a really interesting technique that martin scorsese does in the aviator that i like to point out to people when i look Mm. at the history of color and cinema where the aviator is a story of howard hughes a famous you know aviation enthusiast and entrepreneur who also made quite a few movies throughout the aviator martin scorsese did the biography of howard hughes Throughout The Aviator, Martin Scorsese color times the movie based on what color cinema looks like in the year the movie yeah, was set yeah. at that time. Um, so, like, initially, it's very faded. Hmm. And then by the time Hughes is romancing Catherine Hepburn, it's very technicolor and the greens are skewing a little blue. Yeah. But it's still really gorgeous and, like, very painterly hmm. and immersive. Uh, the, uh, Paul Schrader also did that for autofocus. If you ever oh, saw that movie. I actually never saw that. Oh yeah, in, in the early scenes, everything's like sort of uh, TV, mm. and then as as it goes on, it sort of like creeps into the the gross, dirty browns of the seventies. The entire film is like, like the color is almost saturated completely out by the end. Yeah. it's pretty great. Um, so wait, tri- one of Greg Kinnear's best performances. It's really terrific. I remember when uh, I was first reading like guides of the greatest movies ever made, mm. and they were talking about The Adventures of Robin Hood, and I think it was the Entertainment Weekly Guide to the Greatest Movies Ever Made. It was an old book they did. Yeah. They just flat out said, Will Scarlet's outfit is too much for some televisions. <laughs> like before HD TVs, oh, Will Scarlet's outfit would like burn its way into your TV. It was just so damn red. <laughs> like it's really incredible. Mm. Um, the musical score is one of the all time great adventure scores. It is rousing and exciting and fun. Mm. Um, I, I can't hum it, but it's literally like a bum, ba, 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 ba. Yeah, that sort of. <laughs> Forget it. I don't, I'm not gonna. You, you know what I I'm getting love at how here. You, tried. you know what I'm getting at. 
<laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, so we got Livia de Havilland as uh, as uh, Lady Mary, and Livia de Havilland worked with Errol Flynn many times. I think it was eight times total. They were just oh, a wow. really great pairing together. Mm-hmm. I think they go back as far as Captain Blood. I think this was their first time working together, which is another oh, great, another... very exciting action movie with Errol yeah, Flynn. And so. uh, another Michael Curtiz movie. Yeah, um, let's see what we got here. Oh, we've got the great character actor Eugene Pallet as Friar Tuck. A great guy who always talked like this. Just a really amazing character actor, and I love hearing him talk, and I don't know how he can do it. Excuse me. You'd, rec- you'd recognize him if you see him in a movie. He's, and of, he's, he got around. And, of course, uh, we've got Una O'Connor as Lady Marion's handmaid. <laughs> Una O'Connor is one of the great character actors. I mean, she was in everything in the 30s and 40s. Like, hmm. she was everywhere. I, I think she's probably best known for Bride of Frankenstein. I think, I think I, she's, just everything. She's Bride really of Frankenstein, known, yeah. Invisible Man. She had a lot of, like, these really kind of showy roles where James mm-hmm. Whale allowed her to camp it up and play... Mm-hmm. Like really like a, screechy, and... yeah, just really screechy, just scene stealing broad roles. But she was she was in a whole bunch of Best Picture nominees and winners. She was in Cavalcade, mm. and um, she was in um, Christmas in Connecticut, and she's just a truly delightful presence in any movie. And every time you see Una O'Connor in a movie, you're just like, yay, <laughs> Una! It's like amazing. <laughs> it's like she's like he's like if I imagine Tilda Swinton's mom would be like. Oh gosh! Tilda Swinton should play Uno O'Connor in something. Ooh, she could do it too. Yeah, she could. Ooh, that's a thrill. <laughs> I love that. And Jim Jarmusch should direct. I want to talk about uh, the mm. film's really great epic uh, sword fight between mm. Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone. They started their big sword fighting career in Captain Blood, uh, and uh, Basil Rathbone took it very, very seriously. Errol Flynn did not. Uh, Much to Basil Rathbone's chagrin. Indeed. But um, the movie took some liberties with history. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time when Robin Hood was set, sword fighting was more hacky, slashy. Swords were bigger and heavier. And it was more about doing as much damage as quickly as possible. Less about parrying and thrusting and jumping around. Um also, the, you know, there's a, a great difference between the way sword fighting actually was and the way stage sword fighting was in movies. Very much so. They made a choice yeah. to not be accurate for the sake of being fun. Mm. So the climactic sword fight between Errol mm. Flynn and Basil Rathbone... It's, it's a fencing match. It's, it's a fencing match, and it is a glorious fencing match. And they do some things that, frankly... People today don't even do, and I wish they did. Like, they'll be fighting up and down staircases, and then they'll fight off camera, and then all of a sudden, because they're near, like, a a, a fireplace... You'll see their shadows, their shadows yeah, on, are the big on the wall. And you can see the influence of that on something like the climactic sword fight in Return of the Jedi, where... Mm. This huge fight between two people who really hate each other is turns more uh, uh, stylized. It? Yeah, it turns more stylized mm. within the scene. Yeah, just naturally because in that one mm. it's because their swords are glowing and it's all colored and it's yeah. fantastic. And I guarantee you that was an influence. There have been some really impressive sword fights in movies since then. Uh, of course. Uh, yeah. You know, Kung Fu cinema did it plenty. The, the wuxia films did it great. Mm-hmm. I would uh, argue that the greatest sword fight in movie history is still Rob Roy. 
Rob Roy is really great. The climactic sort of fight in Rob Just, Roy is fucking phenomenal. It's great because it's really well choreographed, but you can see them getting really tired. And I mm-hmm. think that's a really, really important part of it. I also like that it's strategy. Like, you yeah. can tell, like, each one of them fights the way their character would yeah. fight. Yeah, Not yeah. just because... It fighting is cool, um, but because this is how I live and make my choices, so I, damn cool. Again, say what you will about the film, that just from on a technical acrobatic standpoint, the um, the sword fight at the end of the Phantom Menace, where they they're th- cool. three people fighting each other, one has a double edged, double ended sword, and they're just sort of flipping and doing all this cool stuff. It's cool. Uh, if if that were the whole movie, like if they <laughs> released that sequence, I think people would have been fine with the Phantom Menace. I still think the end uh, of Jedi is the best Star Wars one, just because mm. the emotional stakes are so high, and I think um, it was stylized. I was just talking cool, about but, the, yeah. the choreography, but yeah. um, uh, uh, Richard Lester's Three Musketeers has amazing. Yeah, sword that's fights, true. Top to that's bottom. true. Really cool, uh, but. Th- I still think this is a little bit of the golden standard. When people talk about sword fights, whenever they have a sword fight, they're kind of quoting this still to this day yeah. in a lot of ways. That that projection on the wall, I've seen that in dozens of movies. Mm-hmm. This is the film that pioneered that. Um, and I've seen it you know, spoofed, of course, too, like in you know, Men in Tights where they're sword fighting and Robin Hood like takes a, a sip of beer while he's sword fighting. Was it, uh, isn't it uh, in Hot Shots Part 2, they did the same thing when Lloyd Bridges is fighting Saddam Hussein and their oh, shadows yeah. are fighting. And meanwhile, they're walking off camera, like sipping bottled yeah, we water. See, you see them break. pass in front of the camera while their shadows are still fighting. Yeah, and... Damn funny movie. <laughs> um, mm. Anyway, it's it's again, you're right. It's gold standard of action cinema. Mm. It is daring action cinema and that people well, really could have died people really, a lot of this people movie. really could have died what I admire about Robin Hood is is it, it's fun but I th- it's not just fun to watch it's fun to its core like that's sort of its operating mm-hmm. ethos we're we are having fun you are everybody's just having a great time here right but you're having it's f- almost like a hangout kind of film but uh, they're having fun with righteous political rebellion. They're yeah, making there's, there's, politics cool. There's some righteousness here. Yeah, it's like a, a really fun civics lesson, but I I never get the feeling that anybody is is working really hard. And that's really hard to do, actually. Mm. Everybody looks like they're just having the best time and everything is really easy, especially Errol Flynn. But everybody. <laughs> Olivia de Havilland, even Claude Rains, the bad guy, is just sort of effortlessly preening through his scenes. You know what I just learned for the very first time? I never... Mm. I've, I've watched this movie many times and done a lot of research and uh, uh-huh. the trivia. Lady Marion's horse was played by Trigger. Really? Yeah! <laughs> Ray Rogers' horse? Yeah. That's amazing! <laughs> oh my god, there might be some people who don't know who Ray Rogers is. Ray Rogers is one of the great all-time cinema cowboys. He was the mm. guy who... He didn't pioneer this, but he came to typify... Uh, the sort of heroic white hat cowboy singing yeah. on a guitar and telling jokes. Um, and his horse, very famously, was Trigger. And his horse, Trigger, did tricks and everything. Well, that Trigger was, was awesome. There was Roy Rogers and there was Gene Autry. And that's sort those of like the, 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 two, the, yeah. the two that yeah, kind of made yeah. those. Um, I'm trying to think of other... Um, Robin Hood was a huge hit. When it came out, and as as well, it should have been. I mean, first of all, the bold color was just sort of such a novelty, mm-hmm. uh, and it made at the time four million dollars. That might not seem like a lot. You got to remember, tickets, tickets cost, cost a, like a quarter, yeah, like a penny back in nineteen thirty eight. It was an astoundingly huge movie. Mm-hmm. Like it was a really, really big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, it won quite a few technical Oscars. It was nominated for best picture. It didn't win. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is just, gosh, it's neat. <laughs> it's so neat and so smart mm. and so funny. Mm. 
and kind of sexy. Like you know, Errol Flynn and De Havilland have great chemistry together. Just undeniable. Yeah. They have a Romeo and Juliet scene uh, hanging out a window, which is very fun. And mm. uh, there's a whole bit where um, Robin Hood, you know, is convinced that uh, Maid Marian loves him, and she's like, "No, I couldn't possibly." Well, if you don't love me, I might as well throw myself out this window. Oh, mm. look at all those guards down there. Which one do you want me to hit on the way down? <laughs> and that's kind of that's fun. Um, Four million and nineteen thirty-eight dollars. I had to go to like a, an inflation calculator. Is uh, over seventy-two million in twenty nineteen. Mm. Now that, again, that, that also might not seem like a lot. There were fewer theaters back then. Too. Yeah, <laughs> it's also worth remembering. Captain Blood. I'm sorry. Uh, Adventures of Robin Hood wasn't playing on eight theaters in a yeah, multiplex. Well, yeah, at well, a time. it, it like, wasn't released nationwide. That didn't happen until the seventies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This this was a touring film. Yeah. But that's still a big hit. Still a big hit. Um so yeah. This yeah. is this is indeed the gold standard for Robin Hood movies. It's one of the gold standards for action cinema. Mm. Uh it's one of the gold standards for historical epics. It's one of the gold standards for uh medieval romance. It's one of the gold standards for combining entertainment and political messaging. It's one of the gold standards of the 1930s. It's one of the gold standards for literally every single person in the cast, and that's saying something. It's, it's, one of the gold it's standards just a for, damn fine film is what it is. It's just fucking good. And I hope, if you haven't seen it, I'm sure you've heard of it or seen bits of it here or there. If you've never actually sat down and watched it, do. Please. There's a really it's it's one of those movies that is so beloved it's really well taken care of that the Blu-ray that they put out of it you know looks very pristine yeah, yeah. it's gorgeous it's For full a- of, the Blu-ray is full of great stuff by the way there's really great you know behind the scenes documentaries and they put like Looney Tunes. Uh, Robin Hood parody shorts on there with mm. Bugs Bunny and Daffy. Uh, Robin Hood Daffy is one of my favorite of the Looney Tunes shorts. And for a long time, getting the DVD of The Adventures of Robin Hood was the only way you could get Robin Hood Daffy on home video. Uh, they did like I think maybe it was on a VHS like twenty years earlier. Oh man, I but, really want to get. I only have like some mm. of the Looney Tunes like Blu-rays I, they I'm, put out. I'm missing one. I, have, uh, I only have the one. They put set, out six box sets, and I have five of them. God, I haven't been so able to track good. down the six. Um, anyway, it's a hoot, it's a blast, and we love it, and uh, we hope you love it too. Mm. So uh, that is it for the two-shot for this week. Uh, Next week, we'll be back with a review, and I really gotta get cracking, of all the Pink Panther movies. There's 11 of them suckers. Uh, And uh, normally this is when we tell you about the poll we have uh, for the next week, but we're gonna do something a little different for October. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because every October on the two-shot, we like to do whole horror movie franchises. And in order to get a head start on that, we need to do all of the polls now. We need you to select these things so we can get to get to all of our already overburdened viewing <laughs> schedule. Uh, so I'm going to announce what those polls are right now. We'll probably release like one a day or a little bit. I need to talk to uh, the folks in charge mm-hmm. of the uh, Schmoes No account. Uh, again, this poll will be at, at Schmoes No on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we will watch and review whichever franchise you want, and we're going to do one per week uh, in October. So uh, the first week, uh, we're going to go totally old school. We are going to do vampire movies. There are several vampire-centric franchises, and you're going to pick one, and we've decided to pick some ones that are a little less well-known, like not your Lost Mm. Boys, not your Draculas. Uh, Probably the most famous one on our list is Fright Night. 
which a lot of people know about the original and the remake. A lot of people don't. A lot of people forget about the original sequel, and most people don't know about the sequel to the remake. <laughs> so there's four Fright Night films. Yeah. Uh, next up is Subspecies, which is one of those like really low budget grindhousey like monster well, movies that put out like a million sequels, but hardly anyone's actually seen them. Well, there are only three sequels. There's four subspecies films. Is that really it? It feels like there's so many more than that. I, I Maybe the main vampire showed up in other full moon I feel like there might features, be a spin-off but, or something. But this, this was full moon. These are the, the puppet master studio. So yeah, these are really, really low budget. One interesting monster and they milked it as long as they could. Uh, next up, we have the Karnstein trilogy, which is a very... Very excellent series of horror movies, but not a lot of people know about it. Uh, Hammer Horror, they uh, helped bring blood and bodices back to the horror genre in the 1950s through 60s. Speaking of Technicolor, woof. Yeah. Uh, And, uh, you know, they did the Christopher Lee Dracula movies uh, and tons more. And one of their most famous and really excellent uh, enterprises they ever did was a series of three films about Carmilla, the vampire. They are erotic. They are incredibly gay-coded. Uh, in some cases, just flat-out well, openly th- homoerotic. I was about to say, they're not gay-coded. These well, are, they're lesbian films. Basically. But yeah. like, they, they, there were things you still really couldn't say. You just had to like, show them vampire-wise. So. Um, and uh, I'm, I love them all, and uh, I'm a huge fan. Uh, and then lastly... Uh, John Carpenter's Vampires, which a lot of people don't realize had two straight-to-video sequels, one of whom starred John Bon Jovi. <laughs> really? Oh, yes. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's a thing. I saw John Carpenter's. It's the uh, you know the uh, a far too old for the role James Woods as this vampire hunting badass. <laughs> and they're all and, and it's a horror movie, but really it's a western. And all of the all of the, the sequels, from what I understand, are also very western influenced. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, that's, they got some cool people in, like Diego Luna is in one of them as well. And yeah, so uh, those are your vampire options. Uh, coming up after that, uh, we're gonna have slashers. And we decided to go a little, you know, they're the A-level slashers everyone knows about, your Freddies and your Jasons and your Michael Myerses. We decided to go one step below that. Yeah. And focus on some slasher franchises <laughs> that don't get talked about quite as often. Slasher franchises like Maniac Cop. There's, three, there's a couple Maniac Cops there. Yep, Maniac Cop was a slasher franchise about a cop who comes back from the dead and he's and, a maniac. And he's a maniac. And, you know, people run to the police whenever there's a problem, and then he kills you because he's a maniac cop. And, of course, that makes people not trust the cops, and it throws the entire town into disarray. And one of those, one of the sequels has a rap song about him. And yep. that's great. Maniac Cop 2 is, is one of the best of the B pictures. Absolutely. Uh, next up, Prom Night. Uh, the Prom Night movies are about people getting killed at Prom Night. There's Prom Night, uh, Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2. Mm-hmm. There was a remake, and is there one more? So, yeah, there's a three and a four as well. There's a three and a four prom night. No, yeah, there's five of them. Suckers. Can we, can we <laughs> also include the fake prom night movie that Julianne Moore starred in and Benny and June? Sure, cool. Uh, anyway, well, when was the re- it was during that wave of remakes in the two thousands? The prom night remake, right? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Like yeah. it was like a PG thirteen thing, and they totally changed the plot and yeah. everything. And so, uh, yes. Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night Two, Prom Night Three, The Last Kiss was in the late eighties. Uh, Prom Night Four, Deliver Us from Evil, and then there was the remake. It was in two thousand eight. Yeah. Mm. Uh, okay, uh, and then uh, let's see. Then we have the stepfather, starring Terry O'Quinn as a guy who uh, marries into families, tries to create the perfect family unit, and when they inevitably fail him, he kills them all. 
the first one is considered a classic, and the sequels and remake, not so much. I've actually never <laughs> seen any of the sequels or remakes, so mm-hmm. that should be interesting exploration. Who, and then lastly... Who played the, the stepfather? Was Thomas Jane in the remake? No, no, no. It was the, um, oh, it was the guy from Six Feet Under. Uh, oh, not Anthony Michael Hall. No, the other one. Anyway, so um, M- Michael Michael Hall something. Yeah, uh, Michael C. Hall. Michael C. Hall. Yeah, it's not him. It's the other guy. Oh. Uh, okay. <laughs> and, and then, uh, and then, lastly, for the slashers, we have When a Stranger Calls, uh, which is most famous for the original film's opening with the babysitter being called on the phone by a maniac saying, "Have you checked the children?" Mm. Which, of course, influenced the opening scene from Scream. The first movie is well regarded. Most people forget that there was a sequel, and of course, there was a remake directed by Simon West of all people, um, director of Con Air. So that's uh, those are your slasher options. Moving on, uh, we decided to go for social horror. Mm. Uh, a, a hot button topic ever since Jordan Peele decided to sort of reinvigorate the genre and mm. really call attention to it with yeah. Get Out. So uh, there's a lot of options there. Uh, your the poll will consist of Candyman, uh, of course, starring the the great Tony Todd. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's going to be remade soon, so mm-hmm. well, we might have to revisit that series at some point. But uh, yeah, there's... Even so. As it stands, there's already three. Any, so, yeah. any excuse to watch Candyman. Uh, then we have the Invasion of the Body Snatchers movies, uh, which would include the 1950s film, the 1970s film, the 1990s film, and uh, the Nicole Kidman film Invasion. Uh, and each <laughs> one of those tried to update the story of people being replaced... Uh, by you know basically soulless versions of themselves, various parables about conformity, mm. uh, and they tried to tell different versions for different generations, and at least three of them are great. <laughs> Try to guess which three. <laughs> uh, next up uh, on that list, the Stepford Wives. Uh, there was the original Stepford Wives, which is about uh, women who are being replaced by their husbands with brainless versions. And it's a very sexist and uh, mm-hmm. terrifying story. It was remade as a broad comedy. Like, and in the middle, mm-hmm. there were a ton of straight TV, uh, TV sequels. There was the Stepford Husbands, mm-hmm. the Stepford Children, the Stepford Second Cousins. Stepford Ants. Yeah. Stepford Bees. Stepford, Stepford divorcees. Stepford plants. Whatever happened to Rosemary's Stepford wife. <laughs> and then lastly, the Wicker Man. Hooray, yeah. Wicker! <laughs> so the original Wicker Man, everyone knows it's a classic. I hope so. It is a classic. Everyone knows the remake sucks. What people don't always remember is that there was also an official sequel called The Wicker Tree. Which also sucks. <laughs> yeah! That would be possibly the most painful thing you could pick on this poll, by the way. Just so you know. We do get to rewatch The Wicker Man. Oh, yeah. I'll take any excuse to rewatch The Wicker Man. I love The Wicker Man. And, and I've seen the remake, weirdly enough, like three or four times. Like, I've watched that movie a bunch. I don't know Weird. why. Like, don't it know just either. sort of has wandered into my field of vision numerous times. Uh, and then lastly, we're going to go with uh, an odd subgenre of horror bite sized horror movies, which are all horror movies about little monsters. The, the, the homunculi horror. Yeah. And uh, also, there's no shortage of these, but the four we decided on uh, first off, Critters. Mm-hmm. which is about little furry uh, carnivorous monsters from space who land on Earth and are hunted down by shape-shifting bounty hunters. Also, Critters 3, Leonardo DiCaprio's first movie. That's right. Yeah, fun. Yeah, uh, do, do you remember, like, in a recent, like, Rolling Stone interview or something, is he was pretending he had all this integrity. He's like, oh, yeah, I'd never do a sequel. I've never, he's, no, I, I don't know if it, he said it or, or the I, article said it, because, like, he's the last great movie star, and he's never been in a sequel. Literally, his first movie was a sequel. Mm. 
Come on. Critters, critters. And yeah, like critters all, all, all of the horror nuts said it. Critters 3, hello. Yeah, come on. Anyway, so there's Critters. Hmm. Next up, Ghoulies. Speaking of uh, full moon horror movies, uh, these are about uh, little animal monsters who are raised by various people with supernatural interests, and they kill people, and at one point they go to college. And I think they enroll in classes. I've seen none of the Ghoulies films. I saw this is a big hole in my horror education. I saw the second Ghoulies movie, and I thought it was fine. It's cutesy and dumb. Monsters. Um, I I know the the image they banked on is that they, like, live in drains and stuff. Well, the the original poster for Ghoulies had one of the Ghoulies, like, the angry and sharp teeth coming out of a toilet. Like, that was the poster. And I remember seeing that poster, like, around town and in video stores. And apparently it gave little kids who were like potty training a complex. <laughs> and the director, Charles Band, mm. or, or producer, I remember if he directed it or not. But the producer, Charles Band, was basically like taken to death by every parent in America. Like, how dare you try so hard to potty train your kids? <laughs> uh, next up, It's Alive, which is about evil babies. Mm. Several movies about evil, evil, evil babies. And, and one, they go to an island. Full of evil babies. The island of the alive. <laughs> which Unlike is, most islands. Well, it stands as an interesting counterpoint to Knights of Living Dead. Why not Suppose. go to an island of the alive? I guess that makes sense. I've actually never seen any of the It's Alive movies. Mm. Uh, the, the first one in particular is very well respected. It's uh, directed by Larry Cohen. Uh, so it'd be fun to explore that. And then lastly, one that I think most people don't remember. Mm. Munchies. Remember Munchies? Well, Munchies is a gremlin that was like a shameless gremlin's knockoff that came out like like three or four years after the fact. Like late like they, they didn't they didn't rush it in, and um, it was about little wisecracking cr- creatures that multiply in a weird way. Uh, the Munchies multiply when you cut them into pieces, so they come up with a lot of weird <laughs> weird reasons to cut up the Munchies. Oh my god! And they just That's sort of funny. grow back and. Um, it's not as bad as Hobgoblins, but it's still pretty bad. What's as bad as Hobgoblins? Like, there's not a lot of movies that are as bad as Hobgoblins. Having my legs sandpapered is as bad as Hobgoblins. Um, and there were two sequels. Like, Roger Corman wasn't going to let that money pot dry up. So he bought up the rights to Munchies. And made two family-friendly sequels, spiritual sequels that only had one munchie. The munchie was completely redesigned. It looked uh-huh. like a stupid rubber dog. And it was voiced by Dom DeLuise. Oh, no. <laughs> so if you pick that, oh, we're in trouble. No. <laughs> by the way, and I'm going to say this every time we do a poll, just as a reminder... Don't worry about us. Well, we've, whatever you choose, we've seen worse. You got to remember that when you get to a certain point in film criticism, like after you've like done your research and you've seen most, if not all of the classics, everything else is like an extreme sport. Like you're just trying to find (laughs) the craziest, weirdest, worst, most trailblazing avant-garde. It doesn't matter if it's. You know, this holy fucking shit. What's the next The Room going to be? Uh-huh. Or what's the ne- or who's the next Werner Herzog who's going to blow our minds? We're trying to push boundaries. Like, mm-hmm. this is this is what we have instead of heroin. Ex- so please, ex- go nuts. Who are you? Explorers in the outer reaches of experience. Like, seriously. Demons do, to some, angels to others. Do not worry about us. Like, vote mm-hmm. for the thing that you think is going to be the most... Weird, interesting, terrible conversation. Like, mm-hmm. do not worry about us or our feelings. Maybe worry about our spouses. They did not always sign up for this. They did not always sign up for this. Okay, I'm sorry, sweetheart. I really got to watch Munchie Strikes again. 
I know it's our anniversary, but I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, it's your birthday, but please, this one favor for me, Munchie Strikes Again. You'll forgive me. Oh, oh divorce papers. Oh, these are nice. <laughs> Anyway, that's it for the two shot. I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, I want to thank everybody here at the Schmoes No channel. But be sure to check out all the other podcasts if you've only been here for us for a while. There's a ton of new content out there. A lot yeah, of people are trying really hard to give you fun stuff. Um, and give them all a listen. Uh, if you want more of us, uh, Critically Acclaimed is going to start moving over to the Cancel Too Soon uh, podcast feed. Mm. Which is going to become the Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, of course, we also have Cancel Too Soon, where we review TV shows that last like one season or less. Mm. And throughout October, we're going to be doing all horror shows that are voted on via poll on our Patreon page. That's right. Patreon.com slash Critic Acclaim. Uh, you can vote for future episodes of various shows. You get a bunch of exclusive podcasts. Uh, if you loved hearing about old movies like The Adventures of Robin Hood, we have Only the Best, where we review all of the Best Picture nominees in chronological order. In fact, we're only a couple episodes away of, uh, from getting to Robin Hood. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I guess talk, so. We're going to talk yeah, about that one again couple, pretty couple soon. A couple years away from, okay. uh, yeah, from 1938. A couple months away, I think, from getting to that. But anyway. I mean, in terms of Academy history. True. Um, so, anyway, and we're also, uh, we're just about to put out a commentary track for My Little Pony, Equestria Girls, Rainbow Rocks. Available right. on Netflix right now, so you yeah. can watch along with us. And, uh, uh, we it functions up, fine without it. We ended up talking, uh, having a serious conversation about Nietzsche mm. and uh, Walt Whitman uh, while Whitman we... H- Hesiod came up. Yeah. We were talking about theology. Uh, so we have some pretty interesting discussions. It, it, was, a, it was an interesting ride. Mm. Let's just put it that way. Uh, so anyway, thank you again for listening. Uh, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And um, cut. <laughs>